I've had black folk come to me and say, you shouldn't be pushing that. You shouldn't be pushing this idea of don't code switch because people have to code switch. Like it's unfair to teach young, you're a professor. How can you tell young people? And I've had someone tell me this. How can you tell young people to come in with their pants slung around their butt? And I said, well, I didn't say that. So where did you get the idea that a, a young black man being his authentic self means that he has his pants slung around his butt? Like, where did you get this idea from? So we have Stockholm syndrome. My name is Liz, and you're live in the Black Seat, where Black people are sharing our experiences and our true selves in a space that is diverse, free, and unfiltered. Everyone is welcome in the Black Seat, but make no mistake, Black folks are driving. If you're ready to challenge your ideas about Black people or learn something new, we are here for the genuine seekers. But if you're ready, buckle up, let's go. been a while and I've certainly missed sharing great conversations. I've been saving this episode for the perfect time and what better season is there to highlight a black history maker than during Black History Month in the U.S.? Elizabeth Liba is an absolute force of nature. Part social justice warrior, part educator, she's the creator of the online Black History and Culture Academy. Once you hear her passion and conviction, you'll get why she has 100,000 followers on LinkedIn. The concept of talking black turned into talking while black and dipped into code switching, which she no longer does. She shares her beliefs about why most DEI efforts fail and goes into her personal viral story about being falsely arrested over an item that costs less than five bucks. Spoiler alert, it happened in Florida. As always, she shares her definition of blackness and her black hero. Let's go. I'm so excited to talk to you. Please give us your name your age if you want to, where you live, uh, what you do professionally, and how you identify ethnically. My name is Elizabeth Liva. I act probably, don't act my age, but I'm 46. (laughs) You look good. (laughs) Thank you. I appreciate that. You know, they say black don't crack, so I'm trying to like live up to that uh, that mantra. Right. (laughs) Everyone's like, give us your skin routine. I'm just like, no, it's a trade secret, but I'm from... Fort Lauderdale. I grew up in Fort Lauderdale. I live in West Palm Beach right now. I spent most of my life in South Florida. I was born in the UK. I was born in London. My parents are Jamaican. So I have a pretty diverse background. As far as how I identify, I'm just black, blackity, black, black. I don't really say African-American because technically I'm not African-American. I'm an immigrant, but I do definitely closely relate to the African-American experience just because I was raised here. And that's just what I identify with in terms of just my upbringing and the culture and everything that I've aligned myself with. As far as professionally, I work as an instructional designer. And what that basically means is I design online classes for for everyone knows now the pivot to online. So the people that put those classes together, create the courses, work with a subject matter expert to create an engaging learning environment, which unfortunately has gotten a bad rap because a lot of those courses were kind of thrown in because of COVID. But usually it takes us sometimes months to develop a class. So that's usually what I do. I've developed about over the course of my career, over a hundred online classes for my small career college here in Fort Lauderdale. I'm a college professor. So I teach English composition. I have a a podcast as well that I co-host called the EdUp Experience, where we talk about those things. What's going on in education? What are some of the trends? We've seen COVID. We've seen a lot of racial uh, talk about how racial inequity is affecting students in the country. We've talked about student loan debt. We've had about 50 college presidents from all over the country that have come on the podcast over 140 episodes over the past year. And I was named as a top voice by LinkedIn. And that's how we met. 
just for the, the listener's edification, I love the idea that we connected because of your proficiency and, you know, being recognized like that, just that connection. Because I think, you know, most people use LinkedIn for finding a job, but I feel like these connections are just as important. You are in social justice. You have the Black History Culture Academy that you started. And so I want to hear what inspired you to start the academy and what are the goals? We all know that George Floyd was killed and we witnessed that. And I think one of my co-hosts on the podcast, he said, in a sense, not that this is good that this happened, but the fact that we were all sheltering in place with COVID, it actually gave us time to process and digest what we saw. Because I think a lot of us were always on the move, running around, and it happened right at the height of when we first started sheltering in place. And people were shocked at just what they saw and how it played out across the country with people protesting, taking to the streets. This is not right. Police brutality isn't right. And I I found myself in a position where I had just started the podcast. I just started co-hosting actually two other um, men, Dr. Joe Salustio and Elvin Freitas. I met them on LinkedIn. We started the podcast and it was right at that time that I told them, you know, I'm probably going to need to take a step back. Emotionally right now, I'm not in the place where I'm in the mood to get on a podcast and talk to people. Not that I'm trying to be antisocial, but I'm really just processing a lot of the grief that I'm feeling just from seeing all of the unrest around the country and, and rightfully so that people were really upset. And they said, you know what, you have a platform that you've which started to cultivate. Why not use that and start to really magnify your voice rather than shrinking away from what's happening and maybe use that as a way to process. And I was like, you know what, that's right. I should speak up instead of me taking time to really, which I still did process the grief that I felt. Why not use my voice in a meaningful way? So over the past year, I've just been really vocal on LinkedIn, speaking up. Literally, I think I post every day. Maybe sometimes I miss a Sunday, but 365 days a year, I said, you know what? George Floyd said, I can't breathe. He called up for his mom. I cried hysterically at that because I'm a mom. And the thought of somebody gasping for their last breath and calling for their mother. And his mother had already passed away. So that meant that he was not even coherent of what was going on. It just hurt me to my core. And I said, I have to use my voice wisely. And I just started doing that. And I was identified by initially a writer from New York Times reached out to me and was like, hey, I see you on LinkedIn. I'm putting together a story about Black voices on LinkedIn and how LinkedIn has become a place for Black folk to get together and really talk about these issues. And through those connections, and then that story came out, it was a front page story. And I met a lot of other people that were being very vocal about social justice. And it just gave me more confidence to really use social media. I'm not like a politician. I'm not in Washington. I'm not a CEO of a company, but I can use my voice. My voice, I feel is is my superpower. I'm able to use that in a meaningful way to help bring awareness and change and and hopefully help people just to think about it. Even if they think about five minutes and they wouldn't have thought about these issues before, then I think that's really what initially spurred me to do it. And just through through the post, I also had an opportunity to write a piece, an op-ed piece for CNN about racial injustice and racial profiling, which I was a victim of when I was in college. And I would say maybe a handful of people knew that I had been arrested for shoplifting, quote unquote shoplifting. I didn't shoplift, even if I had. When you think about some of the black and brown children that are really penalized so heavily for crimes, like what triggered me, I think, was I saw Bernice King said Khalif Browder stole, supposedly stole a book bag. But here we have Kyle Rittenhouse who killed two people and he's saying he killed them. So it's not like I'm saying something wrong. But it's, was it self-defense? Was it not? The AR-15 was illegally purchased because he's underage. So the fact that someone can do that and walk by police and be ushered by, given a, a drink of water, but I was accused of stealing a pack of batteries. And, and my lawyer was like, even if you had stole them, which you didn't, here's your receipt. We're going to send it to the state attorney, which we did. And the charges were dropped. So I had in my book bag. 
So that's what triggered me this whole idea of a book bag and me being sent to jail, arrested, mugshot, fingerprint. Mom has to post bail. What if she hadn't had the bail? I would have okay. had to sit there and go in front of the judge. What if I had my mom hadn't had the money to get a lawyer? You remember, I'm 19. My mom is living in South Florida. And sometimes our young people like Khalif Browder, you sit in jail because we, we either we pay our bills or we give you bail money. So a lot of those things really came to me when I wrote that article for CNN. It went viral. It had about two million hits. I got like a hundred emails on my job because people found me and searched me out on social media. And even the family of the victims reached out to me. So there wasn't all negative vitriol. There was some vitriol. There was people telling me go back to Africa. People telling me I'm picking on a child and I need to like stop being a whiner. It was just a lot of vitriol, but also people are supportive and said, you know, speak out. And I just thought that creating this Black History and Culture Academy would be another way to use my voice wisely. I designed classes for a living and too many people were telling me they didn't know about Black history. We know from stats that most people are not taught Black history. It's not something that's mandated in public schools, K through 12 or in college. It's not a part of core curriculum. So I just started thinking, well, how can I bring value, which is that I'm a course creator and give people the opportunity to learn about it. I launched a platform. I've had an overwhelming amount of support and outpouring of people wanting to learn about Black history. It's micro learning. So it's small, like four module classes. It's just like, okay, I want to learn what redlining is. I never heard of that. Or I want to learn why Black women are marginalized in the workplace because of their hair. What's that all about? Natural hair movement. What's the history of Black folk in America from slavery, the beginning of the, to us stepping foot in this country to reconstruction, what happened and what are some of the important things that I should be aware of if I'm a black person in America or if I'm a part of the majority culture and I just don't even understand. I've had people tell me they sat down, like they did a lunch and learn with themselves. They're like, I'm going to eat my lunch and I'm going to take this course. I'm going to sit down in the afternoon and learn about blah, blah, blah. It's not expensive, $14.99 a month. So it's not like a couple cups of coffee at Starbucks. It's not something that's going to break the bank. We don't have the emotional bandwidth to teach them. So let me create an area where they can, if they're committed to it. And then that's where the rubber meets the road. Because if you're telling me you didn't know and you want to learn and nobody taught you, but there's a platform where you can go. I believe in knowledge. You gain something out of it. There is a certificate. So once someone's completed all of the modules, they can download a certificate just for a sense of accomplishment to say, I completed this. Black history gives you a better sense of self. It did for me. I learned about Black history when I was in high school. And I learned I was a king, a queen. I was a, a royalty. I wasn't a slave. And that's kind of like, I think a lot of people are taught that. And even the idea of saying we were slaves. We were not slaves. We were enslaved. Yeah farmers. We were kings. We were queens. We were mathematicians. We were court singers. We were drummers. We were all of that. And then we were kidnapped and we became slaves. When I learned it in high school, I went to predominantly black high school. I had a teacher. He would come with his kente cloth and he wasn't the only one, but they taught us like, we don't care if people on the corner out there selling drugs. Don't worry about those people outside. You're we're in this building and we want you to hold your head high. You're going to be successful. You're going to pass. You're going to go to college. And they instill that in us. So that's what we need to think about in terms of black history. Those in the majority culture as well, what are we instilling in someone that goes into K through 12 when they're a five-year-old or six-year-old and the first thing they learn about black folk is black folk were slaves, black folk were chattel, exactly. black folk were animals. And then you want that person to graduate and go into high school or go when they graduate high school or become an adult. And now that person's a police officer, that person is a teacher, that person's a nurse. When they see a black face, what are they thinking? My thought process is in the, all this DEI, and I'm not taking away from DEI because I think people feel like, oh, you're talking down about DEI. But you're asking someone to process implicit bias, systemic racism, white supremacy, white fragility, all these different terminologies. When that person at kindergarten was taught that Black people were an animal. So how are you going to overcome that when that person is a 40-year-old sitting in the C-suite and the person's like, I don't see color? 
That alone is problematic that right. you said you don't see color. Because first of all, it's a lie because my six-year-old sees color. Second of all, you have to see color because black women get 62 cents for the dollar. Black right. men get 82 cents for the dollar. White men that have a college, I'll tell you right now, my husband is white and he makes more than I do. And I got a master's degree. So, and I'll tell him that all day in America, there's something that comes with that privilege that that can bring. And he's in a different career field and all that. But at the end of the day, we always say education is an equalizer. Education is supposed to get you higher. The and myth it's of just meritocracy. True. There's a myth of meritocracy. And I tell them that all the time. I'm like, every time you go on a job, the first thing they want to do is promote you. They don't even know you now. You give me a promotion. And he's like, yeah, why is that? And the first thing I say is, go look in the mirror. That's yeah. why you get your answer right there when you go look. And, you know, people say, you talk to your husband like that? It is what it is. In order for us to change the narrative, people have to get out of their feelings. There's nothing I can't say to him. And it should be like that anywhere. People are like, oh my God, he's okay with that? Yeah, he's okay with it because he knows it's the truth. It's the truth. He's the main one. We looked at the Capitol. He's like, look at me. What is this foolishness going on? He wasn't shocked. A lot of people told me, oh my God, I was shocked. Oh my God, I can't believe it. I'm embarrassed. He wasn't embarrassed. He was just like, that's so dumb. Like, that. look at that. Exactly. Look what our country was built on. So there's nothing to be shocked about. Can we change it? That's what I'm always asking. What can we do to change it? And I think we have to have accurate knowledge and history. When you're walking around with a Confederate flag slung over your shoulder, we got a lot of unteaching to do about the real history of this country and how that has trickled down and it's still affecting folk today. So there's clearly a disconnect in learning what the Black experience has been and not just what it's been, but how it continues to marginalize and affect Black folks today. So that was really the purpose of what I did. I'm like, I'm going to learn today. I feel like it would be a disservice for me as an educator not to do that. One of the editors of LinkedIn, he had signed up and he was like, I never knew about HBCUs. I mean, I know about it. He's like, I'm embarrassed to say this, but I, I didn't know like what the significance of was for an HBCU. So I jumped in that class and I learned about it in an afternoon. Black music, Black culture, Black religion, DEI concepts that I'm not really aware of. And I'm hearing everyone talking about, you know, all these different things. What What is this? And let me get more information about it. So that was really the goal, just to create a platform that would give people the opportunity to learn more about Black history and culture. What I love most about it is that Black history is American history, is world history. So you've created an avenue to focus on these things. And then you've also taken advantage of your professional expertise and you've presented it in a way that people can easily consume it. So they don't have any excuse to not learn because you're giving them all of the goodness presented in a contemporary way. I want to take away the barriers. I do that in my classroom. I'm like, okay, when my students, unlike what happened to me, I went to a PWI and was like, look left, look right. Neither one of those people will be there at graduation, right? Because they're letting you know it's elite. And for someone that comes from a marginalized background, 90% of the students in my school were black. You were pretty much, if you went to college, you were an anomaly. So when you go into a, a PWI and most of the students don't look like you, pretty much you're setting yourself up already for imposter syndrome already. Like maybe I'm not supposed to be here. And like Martin Luther King said, and he rightly did, and we don't hear about that. We hear, I have a dream, but he did say it's unfair very unfair to ask a man to pull himself up by his bootstrap when he doesn't have any boots. Right. How are you going to tell me to pull myself up by my bootstrap? And I don't, I live in Florida. I've never seen a boot before. I don't even know what a boot is. And then I'm going to go and flip flop and I'm in like knee high snow. And then you're like, well, so you should, you should be fine. How, 
How right. can that be when I got on the flip-flop? My friend on LinkedIn said, she said, they own the boot factory. This not even that they got the boots. They got the factory. And we're kind of at the door like, hey, could you got any spare boots out here? And they're like, no. And <laughs> they will like, talk bad about you. It's exactly it's, hypocrisy. It's, it's a lot of hypocrisy. It's a lot of people gaslighting that happens. Mm-hmm. It's a lot of people telling you, you know, you could be doing the most positive thing. I, I posted something about Black women and celebrating Black women. It was two Black women, two African women walking on the catwalk. And then they kind of stopped and they kind of did like a little shuffle. Yeah, yeah. To yeah, kind of acknowledge yeah. each other. Yeah. Some, somebody posts, I don't see two black women. I just see two women. I'm like, why did you feel compelled to say that? And I really asked her because I said, I'm not engaging with people in negativity, but I really want to try to understand. And she's like, well, because, you know, if we keep focusing on that, that's what it's going to be. I can celebrate myself and I can celebrate the beauty of black women without you trying to come on now and pin your narrative that. The way to change it is to stop. We've been doing that. We've been trying to assimilate, right? Mm-hmm. That goes to, to the whole idea of code switching. We were always taught, don't have your hair out. But usually I have my fro out, uh-huh. you know, I, and I've only done that over the past year. I've stopped code switching. I said, you know, I'm not going to do that anymore. Let's talk about that. Yeah, Because sure. that was actually the post that I saw. You had posted the video about mm-hmm. Jay-Z talking mm-hmm. about being himself when he comes into a room. And sure. of course, the responses were all over the place. If you could just describe the video and what you pulled from it in terms of code switching and him fully being himself when he walks into a room. I think sometimes people look at code switching and they look at it in African-American vernacular, right? So mm-hmm. A-A-V-E is just, people used to call it Ebonics, but it's just kind of like just speaking a natural way. And it's actually language. It's not like, oh, this is just slang. It's something that we should be disregarded or something that should be looked at or frowned down upon. African-Americans that were in this country, in terms of slavery, They did not speak English. So they came from all different places all over Africa and their way of speaking became a mixture of what was the dominant culture's language and their own languages and the ways, even Geechee and some of these places in South Carolina, they still, and even in Louisiana, they still kind of have a mixture of when you speak to them, it's almost like they are speaking their own language. So I think there is a, a certain amount of linguistically that Black people are taught to that kind of like just the lull and the tone and how we speak and maybe the way that we, our words kind of will run together. A lot of that is depending on where you're from, where you grew up. So I think sometimes people feel like, oh, we, so you're telling people to speak, you know, unprofessional. No, because my natural tone and the way that I speak is just what it is. It's nothing unprofessional, inherently unprofessional about it. It's just like there's, unless I am saying something unprofessional, like I could be saying something unprofessional, but I don't have to be speaking like this. I could say it like in a Valley Girl voice, I could be saying something unprofessional because I'm saying it in my normal tone that is inherently unprofessional. That's like saying a Valley girl or a Southern accent that, that someone is from like the, the Georgia and they're in rural Georgia. That doesn't make it unprofessional. If someone's accent is not unprofessional and the words that somebody's using, as long as they're using English that you can understand. I'm from my, I'm from Fort Lauderdale and I lived in Miami and people that are from Cuba, from Puerto Rico, from Dominican Republic, they speak with a natural accent. They're speaking English. Of course, when they go into a boardroom, they don't speak Spanish, but in the workplace, it's not frowned upon when they speak Spanish because it's like, okay, they're speaking to the, their person that understands Spanish. If I don't understand Spanish, they don't speak to me in Spanish. There's nothing wrong with that, with people code switching and speaking amongst each other in a way that they understand. Us as Black folk have been taught that the way that we speak naturally amongst each other is naturally unprofessional. Then some people say, well, I don't speak like that. Like I grew up in a white neighborhood. I don't, people tell me I don't, I'm not black enough because I don't have that intonation. That's what I do because I'm from UK. So when people find out I'm from UK, they're like, it's almost like, really? Yeah, because I adapted the way that I speak. And I'm like, I just Elba. If I go around my family, I have an English accent too because we all have our natural way of sliding in and out 
Some people tell me, well, that's not code switching. That's just adjusting to your audience. But black folk tend to use it when we say code switching in this context. We use it as a way, like Jay-Z said, to circle back to the video. The video basically said that when he goes into a boardroom or a meeting, he is himself. He doesn't shrink himself down. He's just his full, authentic self. And he's not changing his voice, the way he sounds, the way he talks for anyone. And that really is epitomizing when we talk about code switching in the Black experience. But people are like, well, Spanish people do that too. Some people speak differently around their family or their kids. That is, in a sense, a certain amount of code switching that goes along with that. But for Black folk, it's a coping mechanism for coping in white America. It can be a survival mechanism. If the police pull you over, if you're trying to make sure that you adjust the way that you are, the way that you're talking, the way that you're presenting, so you don't appear, like Jay-Z said, I don't shrink myself down. I'm not going to put myself in a little box because we've been taught black women do it because a lot of times we go in these spaces, the archetype is the angry black woman, that we're aggressive, we have a chip on our shoulder. I've been in meetings on conference calls before Zoom on a regular conference call on the phone, and I'm just talking like this, just animated, just talking about, don't, you're angry. Why are you so upset? And I'm like, I'm not upset. We're all just talking here. Like, what do you mean? Because there is some, I guess, in the animation and just your tone of voice, there's some kind of idea in people's minds that Black women naturally, because we're talking, some of us, in a way that's more animated, that maybe we're angry or we're aggressive. So what I got out of that video was that you don't adjust your tone. You don't have to be, if you're naturally quiet, because some people are like, well, I'm just quiet. I don't talk loud. So that's fine. So just do that. But there's no one way to be Black. And I guess that was my whole point. And some people feel like, well, he wasn't talking about that. He was talking about just the way that he walks, his swag when he goes in there. It's, it encompasses all of that. Because when you're talking about code switching, yes, we're talking about the voice. But a lot of times for us, in terms of the Black experience, we adjust the space that we take up, right? If you go mm-hmm. into a room, a lot of times, you even you go in a grocery store, if you're in an elevator, you're shrinking down because you're just like, I don't want the person to feel like I'm intimidating them. I don't want the person to feel like I might rob them. I don't want the person to feel like I'm a threat to them because we're taught. You're a threat. We tell our young boys, you know, if the police pull you over, make sure that you're yes, sir, no, sir. Put your hands on the whip because we're taught that we are threatening. There's something about our presence that you could have a white gentleman that will have a podium over his left shoulder, a a Confederate flag on his right shoulder. and He just broke into the Capitol and he's ushered out the door respectfully and and, and helped down the stairs. But if a black man does that, it's automatically guns are drawn. He ain't even got to have anything in his hand. Doesn't have nothing in his hands or like Trayvon Martin, rest his soul, Skittles in the hand. I see and it's like, oh, I was threatened. And people will go for that because they're like, well, he was threatened. This was a black kid. It's It's a natural response. So there's something wrong with that. And that's really why I spoke up about the idea of code switching because I feel as though black people need to be authentic. However, that presents itself. And it could be a British accent, if that's where you're from. It could be a Valley girl. If you're from Southern California and you grew up in the, the you know, the <laughs> Southern California on the beach and everybody around you was just like, you know, surfer dude, then you could do that too. That's fine. But do what feels right to you. You should not have to affect. And what we typically will do is whatever the dominant culture is doing will affect that because we feel like, well, that's acceptable. They're in the dominant and they wouldn't do that. They would just be their normal selves. They wouldn't think to adjust and come in and and have like a, you know, a hip hop (laughs) culture accent because they would just be like, that would be weird. Why would I do that? But we feel as though when we go into their spaces, 
we have to accommodate. Many of us create a personality. I called her, my husband called her Angela. So he'd be like, can you put Angela on the phone to talk to this bill collector? But I told him, well, Angela retired. So I don't know what we're going to do with the bill collector calls. But he will ask me that, like yeah. put Angela on the phone. And I'll be like, well, ma'am, I'm actually not going to be able to pay that bill right now. But what I can do is go ahead and make a payment arrangement. So the way that you're talking now, what would be the authentic Liz saying the, the same thing? Authentic Liz would be the same thing. Like, listen, I don't have the money right now, but what I can do is I can tell you guys that I can pay next week. I get paid on Friday. So can we just come up with an arrangement? Do you guys make a payment arrangement so I could go ahead and make that payment? I can look at my calendar. I want to get it paid just as much as you do. So it's just normal. Right. <laughs> like right. Normal voice without putting on what I feel like, well, this is what they would make a payment arrangement with. Why do I think that? Like, why in my head am I thinking that the best way for me to get what I want is, and a lot of us do it when we go in the grocery store or when we go for interview. Dave Chappelle said it. He said, all Black people are bilingual. We have our interview voice and we have our normal voice. We affect Absolutely. this way of talking because it's like, this is what they want from me. I was not as used to doing that only because I'm a teacher and I teach in mainly community colleges and career colleges. I've never taught like any elite school. So they expect you to be kind of authentic because most of the students at career colleges and community colleges typically tend to be black and first generation students. A lot of them, I would say about 30% of career college and community college students tend to be students of color. So when I would go in for an interview or even to do a demo and do like a teach, so show them, oh, this is what I would do in the classroom. I'm like, say, come on, let's get it popping. Because they're like, they're laughing because they're like, oh, that's what you're going to do in the classroom. Great. Because you're going to relate to the students. But then I go on the faculty meeting. I don't do that because I'm just like, oh, I don't want to think I'm, you know, in here being, you know, and I think there is a balance as well. There is a certain amount of in certain spaces. Am I going to just be like off the wall, like being joking? Because it's just you do adjust to your audience in terms of your personality. But in terms of like my tone of voice and the loudness of my voice, I shouldn't have to be like, I have to whisper because people are going to think I'm yelling. I should just like how we're talking. I'm talking normal and maybe louder than somebody else, right. but it's not anything angry. I'm not mad. I'm just happy and I'm glad to talk to you. So why should I have to, like Jay-Z said, why should I have to damper myself down? And that's basically what he was saying. When I go into a room, my voice stays the same. I'm not going to go into a room and feel like, okay, I'm a black man. They're probably going to be intimidated. Let me lower my voice. Let me shrink down because that's going to be more palatable. The black man is seen as a brute. That's one of the archetypes, the black brute. Right. You could take the classes and you could learn about it. So that would not be true if you say you didn't know. You know what? I think it's interesting. And even uh, talking about that, the idea that they don't know, but they still make judgments about it. Yeah. And which, which, right? which, yeah, which inherently is, and it's never a judgment that gives you the benefit of the doubt. It's a judgment that automatically assigns Black people lesser value, especially on LinkedIn. Because I read the New York Times article that you referred to talking about Black issues on LinkedIn, where people are sharing their stories about racial inequality that they've experienced in the workplace. And there was kind of that judgment of, we don't want to hear from you. And so we will take your post down. When we think about talking while Black, it's not just AAVE, right? It's talking while I am a Black person about Black issues. So what do you think makes people so threatened when Black people are telling their story about what has happened to them? Is it guilt? Is it that they don't care? What do you think makes them just react in that way? That's a really good question. And it's so layered. I think we could talk about that like for another hour, because I believe that 
there's something to the idea of historically black people have been marginalized so much and there is a certain amount of guilt. Like we're black people, unless you're an immigrant and you have uh, got a visa to come here, like I did. If you're, we call that ADOS now, African descendant of slave. If you are truly African-American, your folk stepped on this continent from the continent of Africa and are born of the legacy of slavery, then there is a certain amount of guilt that, okay, we know what we did, but we're not going to acknowledge it. And I think it's different from a lot of countries. Like I'm from Europe. So Germany, they got called on the carpet. Like we taken down all these, uh, you know, all these, we're going to make sure we put everything on the table. We did wrong. We messed up. And they literally have to acknowledge it in every single thing that they do. Same thing in South Africa. It's to the point I was looking at a documentary on YouTube and it's like some of the white people are more marginalized because they're just like in poverty because the country was like, we can put a smack down because what you did, apartheid was wrong. And now we're going to make sure everybody knows it's acknowledged in every single area to the point where it's almost like the black people are more like the chosen ones. American really has not done that. Everything that we've had to overcome not talk about how those the historical marginalization of Black folk in this country has affected Black folk until today. So there is a certain amount of, well, you shouldn't be talking about that. And then also that you should be an American, just basically assimilate to the dominant culture and become like the Italians, like my husband, the Irish, any other group that were immigrants have basically been able to move mostly into the mainstream. And we're seeing that more even with some of the Asian Americans and some of the Asians, the immigrants from the Middle East, there's this kind of narrative, well, other people come here and they kind of just assimilate in. And that's really not true because I'm from South Florida and the Cuban community is strong and dominant and they're doing their own thing and they're not trying to assimilate. The Jewish community, same thing down here in South Florida. They have their own networks, their own businesses, their own schools, their own where they worship and they maintain their own sense of culture. Black folk are the only people that are asked just to continue to just assimilate to a culture. It's almost like like back to Martin Luther King again, assimilate into a burning house that doesn't want you. And then when you don't assimilate properly or you're not able to, because it's just literally impossible, no matter what you do, your skin color still is going to be looked at. People say they don't see it. That's not true because you wouldn't have George Floyd if, if that was true. There is a certain amount of not really wanting you to speak up, not wanting you to acknowledge the, like I told you earlier, where I said, oh, look at these two black women, proud black women showing, doing their thing. I love black women and we're so amazing. And the woman was like, well, why are you saying that? Like, all I see is two women. That was problematic because that's what they want. They want you to just say you're a woman and not acknowledge. So I think that's where a lot of that discomfort comes from. When you're on a platform like a LinkedIn or you're speaking out, on a national stage, there's almost a sense of you're trying to be divisive. You don't want to be a part of the mainstream. In the Cuban community, I've worked in Hialeah, right in the center of Miami. And this place is, if you go, if you don't speak Spanish, you might as well just go, but get back in your car and go somewhere else because everybody in there speaks Spanish. And that just is what it is. So there is a sense of other cultures are able to come and embrace their culture, talk about their culture, pass their culture on down to their children. We will never know really where we came from. Even us from the islands, Before Jamaica, I was laying in bed last night and I said, okay, I know my folk are from Jamaica and we have generations that were there, but where were we before that? Mm -hmm. We will never know because all of us that are brown and of African descent in the Western hemisphere, we all came from Africa. Actually, if we want to really get technical and really blow people's minds and make a map, everybody originated from Africa because Africa is the motherland. Anyone, whatever the color of their skin, whether they're the whitest white person with blonde hair, or if they're the darkest person with the darkest skin, with the curliest, kinkiest hair in the world, all of us originated from Africa. So the fact of the matter is for us though, black folk that are on the, in the Western hemisphere, we just don't know where we came from. And the dominant culture is asking us, well, just don't worry about that. 
when I see posts like that and when I think about the way that they look at us, it's that reminder of what they did. Absolutely. It's like if you, your spouse steps out on you and has a child and the child comes to live with you. Every time I look at this kid, I know what happened. Yes. And they don't want to reckon with that. Mm-hmm. And their way of putting a bandaid over a cut, a big cut that was made with a, a machete is to just say, well, don't think about it. Just put the bandaid on and you're fine. Don't but, worry. And we can't heal. And the thing about them, you know, saying forget about slavery. I'm like, but y'all still want to celebrate July 4th, 1776. And that was even <laughs> before that every year, y'all got a national holiday, but then we bring yeah. something up and it's, It's very hypocritical. And I posted a picture of an enslaved man. It was his back and he was wrapped in an American flag with lashes, like open wounds on his back. And I'm like, you know what, guys, I'm sorry. I'm just not in the mood to celebrate a barbecue or, you know, light fireworks right now, because during 1776, black folk were still enslaved. So how am I going to celebrate Independence Day when black folk in America were still enslaved at that time? And people were mad. Oh, that's you shouldn't say that. Why not? It's historically the truth. I believe in speaking truth. I'm not. Why can't I say it? It's that discomfort that people, they don't like the idea of feeling uncomfortable. Right. They're just the idea of like the actual emotion of it. They cannot sit with. And I feel like when, when black people speak in AAVE, I feel like there's the discomfort of knowing that we're different. Yes. That we're saying something different. And then it's Mm -hmm. something that is not accessible to them. Correct. Exactly. And, and they don't that's like that. uncomfortable. Yeah. They don't like, I don't, I don't like, it's just like when, you know, saying the N word, I don't like the fact yeah. that I can't say this. Yeah. To you. And, and, then, and then why do you want to say it? It's like, so what is that going to accomplish? It's almost like there's a sense of privilege mm-hmm. and that extends to back to that same example of when I'm saying, look at these black women, they're beautiful and they're celebrating. It's like, well, why do you have to say that they're black? Why not? Like, what is it that is so upsetting to you that black folk are celebrating who they are, what they are, how we present, what we do. And like you said, there is a certain amount of the inaccessibility where we don't want you to have your own independence. It's one of the reasons why I don't like the idea of white folk necessarily leading DEI efforts and things of that nature. Because I think about myself as a married woman, I'm not speaking out for LGBTQ because I don't feel as though I have enough context, enough background and enough of their lived experience to be effective. And I feel like sometimes there's a patriarchy of, well, I know what's best for you and I don't have to have your experience. I can just read about it in a book and then I'm knowledgeable enough to advocate for you. And I feel like a lot of the reason why DEI in this country has been largely ineffective is because the people that are leading it and are being tasked with it are just not black folk. Right. So there's almost like a sense of, well, this is just a project. This is something I'm going to talk about and then I can go back to the suburbs and live my life and my children will have to experience these things. And I'm not really going to be victimized by these things. So it's not something that people have a large enough stake in, enough skin in the game to really push for the idea that whiteness has to be cent- decentered in America, which is why another reason why I did the platform. Whiteness has, must be decentered because whiteness is not the default. It's not like, oh, you're the default, you're the pinnacle and everything else is, else is other. We're all a part of this and all of our experiences and all of our lived experiences and all the richness and beauty of them needs to be addressed. It needs to be celebrated. It needs to be centered. And if we're not even centering history of Black folk, then how can we center the present? The history should be something that should be easy because it's like, okay, that happened already. So let's just talk about it. But they can't even access that. So then if I'm telling you today 
that I feel some type of way because I know that I work twice as hard as Brad and Brad just came in here and got a promotion and I'm sitting here like, well, what happened to me? And I know Brad makes more than me. I can't tell you about that or I can't talk about that. And that's not something that's addressed. Then that's problematic. And there's something wrong where we're not given the space for those things to be changed. And how can they change when, like you said, this feeling of being uncomfortable is something that's even something that's like, oh, that's, I don't want to feel uncomfortable. I always, when people say these conversations are uncomfortable, I usually do push back against that because I'm like, well, why is it uncomfortable? I've had people literally from LinkedIn tell me, why did you use the word white supremacy? Or why did you use this terminology or that terminology that made me feel uncomfortable? Why did you feel uncomfortable? Because if someone says homophobe or somebody says gay bash or something, somebody says something negative that's being done to trans folk or gay folk or bisexual folk, this is for me to feel comfortable for because I know I'm not doing it. I know right. I'm not upholding for it. If somebody says something about it, I know I would be like, chill, don't say that. There's something wrong if you feel as though someone's saying systemic racism or if someone's celebrating black culture or black women or or trying to edify or amplify that you feel uncomfortable. What is there to feel uncomfortable about? It's, because that, if someone's, it's, it's that guilt. I always question that. You know what? I think it goes back to something that you said, even at the beginning, when you were talking about the concept of time, how you learn about like monochronic versus polychronic time, where it's generally cultures of color that have this polychronic sense of time and white people who have this, you know, we got to be on time, got to be on time. And that becomes what's centered and acceptable in the default. And I feel like, especially when we're talking about language, the standard English becomes the default. And then because there's a default, by extension, anything else, even if you're communicating the same exact concept, if I tell you I'm finna be late or I say I'm running late, that's the same, the same concept. Same concept. Has been communicated, but there is a value judgment because this is not how we're used to it. And we dictate to you. What we're telling is, you what yeah. you're supposed to look like, what you're supposed to sound like, yep. what you're supposed to do. And I think that that centeredness as the, this is the best as opposed yes. to not, you know, this is just a way. This is the way. And nothing else can deviate from that. Because right. if someone says I'm fitting to be late or someone says I'm going to be late, which Brad might say I'm going to be late to the meeting. Mm-hmm. Nobody would say Brad is being unprofessional. They would just say he's going to be late. So the idea that there's a certain standard and that standard becomes a default. And if you don't fit into that standard, that's why as black women, we've had to push the envelope and get the, the crown at pass because somebody told us what grew out of our head is not professional. How can what comes naturally out of your head, you have to now sit in the beauty shop every few weeks and put a chemical relaxer on your head because somebody said that is unprofessional. Somebody says that is not the standard of, of professionalism in the office. Not that you're standing on the desk and, and have a, a, a megaphone and yelling in the office or something that's clearly unprofessional. You're just wearing your hair the natural way it comes out of your head. I had someone tell me about AAVE and code switching and he said to me, an older white man, he said, well, the reason I don't agree with it, because you got to remember somebody's a business owner and then you get on a conference call or something like that. And then you're talking in a certain way that maybe tr- cause that person to lose a business deal. And then they put all their money behind that. And then if you're not acting professional, I said, OK, let's take that same example. Let's say you have your team. And I knew somebody on his team that was in marketing. He, said, he happens to be black. And I said, let's say he comes on the, the conference call, conference call about to get started. Let's kind of just what did you guys do over the weekend? You know, just so as we're sitting here waiting for the call to begin. And he says, you know, me and my husband went to 
Orlando. And I said, suppose that client pulls you to the side and said, I'm not comfortable with that. He said he went to Orlando with his husband and I don't like that kind of lifestyle. And I feel like I don't even know if I want to work with you guys. I definitely don't want him leading up my team. I said, what would you do? He's like, I would not work with that client. I would, you know, shut that down. I would. So I said, so you would feel as though if that person had some kind of issue with this person saying their lifestyle is gay lifestyle, they have a husband, you would definitely disavow that. But if I come on the conference call, I'm just talking my normal voice. You're telling me that that's unprofessional and that's something that would cause you to lose a deal. But you just said that the client was telling you they would not want to work with you because of this person having this homosexual lifestyle and you would put the hammer down and you would tell the client, I don't want to work with you. How do you navigate that? How do you process that? And he was like, I don't really know. You're absolutely right. It was just like the idea that our lived experience, the way that we are, what we Mm -hmm. present as is inherently unprofessional. And what is unprofessional about it? Why is talking in my natural voice? I said, am I talking smack right now? He's like, no, I don't even know why I said the word smack. I said, so you need to maybe think about why Mm. you think a black person talking in their normal voice. I'm like, where did you get the idea of smack? So the idea that you're going to say a black person, because I'm talking my normal voice, don't talk smack or don't say the N word or don't curse. Why is it that you think that black people are normal way of talking is talking smack and saying the N word? Would I go to my mom's house and and say the N word and talk smack? I wouldn't. It's just these silly stereotypes and archetypes that get pushed. But for some reason, they're able to put that aside if it's someone in the LGBTQ community. Clearly, that person's not going to do that. No one would do that. That's unprofessional. I I feel like it's an exposure thing too, right? If you have not been exposed to Black people across the range of the way that we communicate, your assumption, if you've only seen Black people on TV or you listen to the music, right? Because they all listen to the music. And so they assume that that's how we communicate. If you've never actually worked with a Black person (laughs) and heard all the different ways that we speak, your assumption is this is how this person is going to talk and you lose any sense of professional. Like if you come in and I'm like, Hey, you know, Liz, I'm here to do this job. Got this presentation. And the instant I go into home Liz talking to my mother on the phone, what's up? What what you doing? You lose that professional cachet. It's not you switching into something else. It's you. Oh, you're inferior now. Exactly. Which is why a lot of us do that. We perfect that. And that's why I said I'm not doing it anymore, because what I'm doing is actually perpetuating white supremacy by doing that, yes. because I'm giving you now a reason yes. to discriminate against me. Because I talk like I get on a conference call. I talk to a CEO of a company. I don't care who you are. I've, on my podcast, I had Bracken Darrow, who's a CEO of Logitech, and I was talking just like this. No not doing it. I'm not talking no different than how I would if I was going to my mom's house. Because you know what you need to do? You need to see how Black folks talk normally, not some affected creation that we make to make other people, because we're taught that from a young age, right? It's all about making people comfortable. Mm. So there's nothing unprofessional about it. It's not that we're saying curse words or doing anything. We're just just being uncomfortable the same way they do, because they don't switch. It's like, oh, that's just adjusting to your audience. Don't tell me that. Because I teach English and I teach all day and I teach in front of 20, 50, 100 people all day. And I know what adjusting to your audience is. Like you said, there's a certain amount of us creating that narrative and then they jump on that and they're just like, well, 
this is what professionalism is, or this is what a black person is. And that is something that we've done to make them feel comfortable. And then they almost kind of use it against us. Like, well, that's what you're supposed to do. This is, this is what a professional person looks like. And like you said, a majority of people, there was a study that was done not so long ago, I think 85%, it's like 75 to 80% of white folk do not have a black friend. You know, they tell you they got a black, oh, I got a black friend. That's a lot. Most of them don't have black friends. They're not exposed to black people. They haven't consistently had black people in their life. I think it's very different. And that's why I was talking about the LGBTQ community, which is another marginalized community. A lot of LGBTQ folk, especially right after HIV pandemic, I would say the epidemic in the 90s. And after that happened, they were decimated. And a lot of them said, you know what? No, we're going to get married. We're not going to be discriminated against. We're not going to not be able to get health care. We're not going to feel that we have to be pariahs in society. And a lot of what I think came out of them being very like the gay pride movement was them being so marginalized during the HIV epidemic and them not having the proper access to health care and not feeling comfortable enough to be saying that they were gay so they could get help. And a lot of them did stand up and they really fought. So you have a lot of families that are saying, okay, yeah, I have a cousin that's gay. My brother, you know, is gay. This person's gay. That person's gay. There's not that same empathy, I don't think, for Black folk because no one's saying I have a Black brother. No one's saying I have a Black cousin. Everyone's still saying I see Black people on social media or I see a rap video. Like you said, there's that lack of exposure to us as a people and the fact that America is still very much segregated. So you can literally have people tell me that. I've gone my whole life and I've never had a black teacher. I did a poll on LinkedIn the other day. How many black teachers have you had? And you'd be surprised the number of people that has zero. Mm-hmm. And you're talking about K through 12 and college. So you've never had a black teacher. So you're talking about 16 instructors. And, and really you can't say K through 16 because in college you have had multiple, multiple instructors. If you take several, if you're taking a full course load, you might have like for the whole year, you might have 12 instructors. I have more in college just because I was an African-American studies minor. Outside of that minor, I think I had one. So that's really dismal. And Mm -hmm. I mean, if you think about it, there's only 5% of college instructors that are Black. So there's really very minimal possibility that you would have a Black instructor. However, over the course of the next 20 years, the demo of Black students and other students of color is going to be up to 50%. America is getting to the point where black young people are going to be the majority, black and brown young people. We're talking about Hispanic. So we as a society, you know, those that are currently in the majority are going to be the minority. We are going to see that demographic switch. I mean, you see it happening in other countries. We're going to see a big upswing in the black and brown population of this country. And this country as a whole needs to get a hold of the narrative and what we profess to be the truth about this country. You saying that actually brings up something that the idea that the student population is getting more diverse, but if there is not the same diversity among the teaching population, then what we're looking at is the perpetuation of whiteness being centered because you are an authority figure and you're the one that tells me that standard English is correct. You penalize me for speaking in this way. And I go through my whole academic career in those formative years, even though I'm surrounded, my peer group is, but you in front of the classroom have told me that what I'm doing is not as effective, the way I look, the way I speak, the way I think. That just screams, you it know, is. continued marginalization. Absolutely, because they're going to be young. So you think about it, it's going to take it's going to take two, three generations before we even see any traction when it comes to that, because you're still going to have. And that was a conversation I had on my podcast with um, 
Dr. A.D. Carson. He's like nationally known. He's super amazing. His album was phenomenal. It's like 30 tracks, hip hop. And that was his dissertation. And he was like, well, why can't a hip hop album be a dissertation? He's like, it's poetry, it's music, it's me teaching. And he has a song on there called Stripes. It's about Clemson, which is where he did his um, undergrad and the stripes on the tiger representing the stripes of the, the slaves that built that campus. So there's a lot of his analogies and, and, and some of that metaphor that language that he uses on the album. When we were talking, he was talking about this idea that you have the people that are the gatekeepers that are telling those that are coming into the academia what is acceptable. And it's just like, well, who gave you the authority to say what's acceptable and what's not acceptable? And like you said, when you have students that are coming in and that academic elite is still older white men, there still is going to be that lack of mentorship, lack Mm -hmm. of retention, lack of student success measures because those students are coming from marginalized backgrounds. And if you don't have someone at the top of the uh, administration or college presidents that are pushing for change and initiatives and support mechanisms for this influx of predominantly black and brown students, then what's going to happen? Like you said, it's going to perpetuate this inequity because they're going to not be retained. They're going to drop out. They can't graduate. We already have low graduation rates across the spectrum. So those marginalized students tend to be have different needs and tend to have different needs as far as mental health, as far as support, mentoring, coaching, whatever it is on campus, academic support, wraparound services, all these things need to be addressed. But if you have someone that's a 60 year old white man and who's just like, hey, it's a meritocracy, they need to come in and just prove their worth and pull themselves up by the bootstrap, then what's going to create that environment? And then we're asked on top of all this mental trauma to watch what we think, what we hear, what we see, what we, how we dress, how we're, our hair looks, how we talk. And then it's like, but don't see color. So we're, you know, we're treating you all the same. If you don't see color, then just uh, James Ball will say, just then leave me alone. Just, well, I don't know. want to be bothered. Just leave me alone. Yeah. And you mentioned it, that it becomes, it's a coping mechanism and a survival mechanism. When someone comes in from the outside, they don't have that if they didn't grow up in the culture where they had to exactly. learn those skills. Which is why when I talk about code switching and I don't say other people shouldn't code switch people, if they want to affect a certain personality in white spaces, I feel like people have to do what they think is best for themselves. Mm -hmm. So I don't ever say you shouldn't code switch. What I say is I don't code switch. I stopped code switching last year. I did it for the majority of my career. I did it in every space, almost unless I knew that it would be accepted for me to be my authentic self. I pretty much code switch in every single environment that I went to. I don't care if it was a grocery store or the boardroom, I was doing it. And I said that I stopped doing it because I felt like I was holding something that is telling folk in the majority culture, this is what a professional woman looks like. When I get on a Zoom, I get on a Zoom just like this. I got my bamboo earrings on because that's what I'm wearing at home. I'm not going to change it. I'm not going to put on a pearl earring. I've got my tats on because I'm at home and I don't feel like if my boss kicks on my boss, she's black, but she ha- puts on a tag top. I got on a tag top too. There's nothing wrong with it. It's not unprofessional. It's not doing anything to you. It's not bothering you. So just look at it like it's a dress and it has like a bird symbol on the dress. I just pretend that's right. what it is. And I think my whole goal over the past year was to deconstruct what people think is smartness, what people think is professionals, what people think. If people could tell me you're brilliant, but I still got on bamboo earrings. That didn't change. I still got a tattoo on my arm. That didn't change. I'm still talking the way that I'm talking. You read what I wrote. So you know that it's brilliant because you read it on LinkedIn or you read a CNN article. But then when you see me and you're like, oh, she looks like a roundaway girl. A roundaway girl can be intelligent. Guess what? Mind blown. That has to be deconstructed. 
we have to, I think, and I always say, if other people don't want to do it, because a lot of people kind of got like a backlash, because like to go back to what you said about this is our house and we get that sense of, well, what do I do? I've had black folk come to me and say, you shouldn't be pushing that. You shouldn't be pushing this idea of don't cold switch because people have to code switch. Like it's unfair to teach young, you're a professor. How can you tell young people? And I've had someone tell me this. How can you tell young people to come in with their pants slung around their butt? And I said, well, I didn't say that. So where did you get the idea that a, a young black man being his authentic self means that he has his pants slung around his butt? Like, where did you get this idea from? So we have Stockholm syndrome. We have this idea that we have to do what masses say. And I hate to say this, but it's the truth. It's almost like the movie Django. We sit balls and Malcolm X said it. A lot of times when we're in the house, like you said, this is our house. It ain't oh, what they're doing. We take on that. We sick boss. We, you know, this is what we're going to do. We have to align ourselves with you because they're the problem. Those people that are out there rioting or looting or talking in AVE or wearing their hair in a natural fro, we don't do that. We're, we have to align ourselves with what the dominant culture wants us to do. And if that means that we're going to sacrifice and if, hey, if they're doing something that's wrong, we're going to call them out because they're not aligning with what the dominant culture says we should be or what we should say or what we should think, then we're going to call them out because proximity to whiteness has also been something where people feel like that is what gets you where you need to go. So for me to tell people don't code switch, and I say, I didn't tell nobody don't do it. I say, I don't think it's healthy. There have been studies shown, mental health professionals. This has been, from a psychological perspective, it is not healthy for somebody to affect something that actually gives them trauma because you're now having to create an alternate personality and that's what you present in the workplace. That's traumatic. But if someone wants to undergo that trauma, I did it my whole professional career. So for me to judge someone and say, don't, or I'm putting you down because you don't do it, I'm not. But what I'm telling you is it's freeing not to do it. If you want to know how not to do it, come look at me because I will give you the example. (laughs) But am I saying don't? If you want to do it and you feel that it's necessary to do it, and honestly, if I get pulled over by the cops, I'll probably do it too. So I understand why it has to be done. I just don't agree with it. You brought up something really important that I think also robs us, us being our authentic selves. Why is the opposite of speaking professional or looking professional or whatever that is, why is the opposite of that sagging pants? Proximity to whiteness. We're not affecting whiteness, then you're a thug. You're a Jezebel. You're the archetype. We can't just be normal. You can't, there's no place in the middle. There's no in between, no. And that to me, it denies everyone who is in the middle. Correct. Right. The ability, like there's nothing for me. Either I've got to be extra, extra professional or. That's very problematic, which is why I don't agree with it, because it gives you literally you're either affecting whiteness, which everyone is used to doing. So they're like, that's what's the right thing to do. Or you're the archetype, which is what everyone doesn't want to be and doesn't want to be perceived as. So if you advocate for not affecting whiteness, all of a sudden you're actually bringing down the black community because you're telling us be the baby mama, be the thug, be the real house of Atlanta fighting or whatever you see on social media. But that's not what we are either. That's just a narrative that's created. That doesn't mean that's what I am. Like you said, most of us ride the middle. Depending on who I'm talking to, I might affect a little bit of a different, depending on who I'm talking to and my comfort level. So it doesn't mean that I'm saying, oh, everyone has to you know, be a certain stereotype. That's almost like there's no reason for me to advocate a, a negative archetype. And that's almost what people are saying that you're doing. If you're saying, just be yourself. Why is it that being yourself automatically, you have to go all the way to some negative 
thug with his pants slung around his with a, a beeper on his hip and a, a gold <laughs> and a, you know and a, a stack of money in his pocket like right. where is this like who is that person right. like why have you created this idea and that's why I think we see a lot of that police brutality that happens because there's this idea that black men are superhuman like this archetype of this brute that will bust through you know a door and just like tear down the whole house it's just like that will give you the justification to shoot somebody in the back and put seven bullets in their back because that person couldn't be taken down with just, you know, a taser or but someone that is busting through the Capitol door with a chair and smashing the glass, literally killing police officers. It was like hor- horrific. That person doesn't deserve to be shot. And this person doesn't deserve to be tased. That person can be peacefully reasoned with like, guys, please stop. And you heard them. Please, guys, come on. Don't do that. I have yet to see a video of a black man being killed, being accosted, being pepper spray, anything where they said, please stop. It was just like basically releasing whatever, whether it was a dog, a gun, a pepper spray. Tamir Rice, a 12 year old, was seen as a man. And when I see my child, I'm like, I don't want a world where because he's his skin is brown or he's racially ambiguous in his case. Not really sure, but just to be on the safe side, let's pull out a gun on this child because we don't know what he's capable of because his brown skin predicates that he's not going to be coming with us quietly like somebody else would if they look like me. Someone that looks like me will come quietly. Someone that's brown, I'm going to have to pull out the stops because this person is going to fight me. We don't get the benefit of the doubt in terms of nuance, right? You've got someone who storms the Capitol or blows up Nashville. We go into all of these different aspects of his sure. personality and Absolutely. his story and his background. Absolutely. But Black people, you're either this or you're that. And that narrative is very problematic, which is why I try to deconstruct that with history and with media and with just this idea of authenticity, because it's very important for people to see us in our raw and real authentic self and understand we're just regular people. Maybe you don't have any friends. Maybe your neighbor's not black. Maybe, okay, I'm gonna give you the benefit of the doubt. But now you've seen and followed me for a year. You've seen my story. You've heard how I got racially profiled. I'm not a 6'5", 250. I'm just a regular. I was like a 19-year-old, a buck 10, I think I was at the time. Over some batteries. Over some batteries that I had a receipt for. And my lawyer, an older white gentleman, he'd been practicing law for, I think, a couple decades. He was like, this is something I've never even seen this before. But he said, you know what we're going to do? We're going to send this receipt to the state attorney office, and then we're going to sue the mess out of them. We're going to sue their pants off because they would never do this again. He said, you're not going to get rich, but we're going to make sure they think twice before they do this to somebody else. So sometimes that's what we have to do. Maybe it's not the most comfortable thing. A lot of times when I'm talking out and speaking out and saying some of the things that I say, it is quote unquote controversial. People don't like it. There's a lot of pushback from those in the dominant culture and even those of us, because I've heard people say, you know, we have a little bit of Stockholm syndrome. We sick, you know, it's like we have to align ourselves because if you don't align yourself with what the dominant culture thinks and you're a rabble rouser, you're a troublemaker, you're a rioter, you're a looter, you're someone that's divisive. And my thought process is, we're not a monolith. So people don't have to even agree with me. I see people that are social justice warriors and talking about their conservatives, how they're conservative or some of their Christian values or some of the things that they stand for that I don't necessarily agree with. You know, my belief system might be totally different in terms of just how I grew up or how I was raised or how I perceive the world around me or, my, or, or just my outlook on life. But that doesn't mean that their viewpoint isn't valid. They can have their own viewpoint. Everyone is entitled to that. We shouldn't have to be pigeonholed in a way that makes it say that, our viewpoint has to be aligned with those in the dominant culture and, and the, however they perceive things. That young woman or that lady that tells me that like, well, you shouldn't look at it like, oh, black women, you know, being beautiful or black women walking the catwalk. They're just women. 
And I'm like, you're free to have that philosophy, create a post and talk about women being beautiful, just all women are beautiful. Then I'm sure you'll get people that will agree with that. Here, I'm saying black women are beautiful and I'm celebrating the beauty of black women. And she says, I'm Hispanic. And I'm Hispanic. She's like, I'm Hispanic. That makes it even worse. Right. It's like the fact that you're take, trying to use that now to say because you're of an ethnic background that's not the dominant culture, that that means automatically that I have to see everyone as not having color. That's your choice. You, you can see whatever you want to see. You can do whatever you want to do. For me, I speak up for what I believe is empowerment of Black people. But like you said, I think there has to be more nuance with what Black people are. We're not a monolith. I'm not, people sometimes they get on me and I get to the point where I'm like, you know what? I don't even have a dog in the fight because I'm not even from here. What I do understand is right is right and fair is fair. I had I was in a clubhouse room the other day and a woman spoke up and she said, you know, what's happening is a lack of empathy because I don't have to dig in the garbage to get food out of the garbage can I, I, to know that that sucks. I could see somebody behind 7-Eleven digging in the garbage for some food, a sandwich and say, oh, that sucks. Like, I wouldn't want that. But they'll see things that are happening to us and and blame us for digging in the garbage. You know what I mean? They'll see us getting shot and say, well, what did you do to get shot? Like, why did the police feel threatened? It's like, I was just standing there. I'm just like Breonna Taylor. I just woke up out of the bed and all of a sudden I was getting shot. Well, she shouldn't have been dating a drug dealer. It's always something to justify people being mistreated. And that's, I think, what I find the most unfair. We are not a monolith. We have so many variety of experiences. And then we, we have to be seen as human, you know, the diversity and beauty of our culture has to be something that is embraced. It's something that's celebrated. It's something that we're not othered. It's something that we're not asked to be assimilating to the main culture. And if you assimilate and, you know, just do all X, Y, Z, then everything will be fine. We've been doing that since integration. And like Martin Luther King said, we integrate into a burning house because we're not wanted here. It's never going to happen. Literally impossible, which is why I I speak up a lot for the idea of empowerment and us speaking our own truth and that Mm -hmm. being embraced. Because I feel like the idea of I don't see color and uh, just assimilate and let's all be just one big, you know, happy family. It's just not realistic. So we have to be advocating for ourselves. The same way that the gay community, LGBTQ didn't say, well, we're just going to assimilate and be hetero. They don't pretend to be hetero. I've been in meetings where someone, a gay person, a gay male will just be like, well, my husband, blah, blah, blah. And he's not batting down or being scared to say my husband. He just says it because he's like, I got a husband just like you. And you better not blink when he says right. that. They tell us don't speak AABE or don't, you know, don't speak in that way. Just adapt to the norm. If I went to that man and told him adapt to the norm and don't talk about your husband, I'll get fired. You can better believe it'll be a human resources uh, report filed against me and I'll be looking for another job. So the, I feel the as angry black woman is discriminating. Exactly. That'll be the front page news. And that's yeah. the problem. I think we're asked to literally control who we are and not be our authentic self. There are states still where if you have your fro out, if I have my fro out, it's like we can be discriminated against. If we go into a job interview, there's many times, even though the Crown Act has been passed in Florida, there's many times that I have looked in the mirror and said, should I wear my hair out or should I put it back in a bun? If somebody is working with you professionally, they have seen your picture on LinkedIn or any other site and you're still making that calculation because I did the same exact thing. It's just so ingrained in us to know that we will be judged on that. And we're always looking for that, the the survival mechanism, the coping mechanism. How do we adjust ourselves? It's trauma. It absolutely is. I have literally gone on job interviews and thought, maybe I should have had the bond. Maybe the fro just, just pushed me into the no callback category. How do you define Blackness? 
Hmm, that's a really good question. I think I come at it from a different perspective just because I've lived on two different continents. I have lived in the UK. My family is Jamaican. I've lived in America. And I think for me, Blackness is what it does. It's just like you are who you are. I don't really think that there's a a particular definition of Blackness only because as well, my family is biracial. I have biracial children. I feel as though Blackness is really defined by whoever is the individual that is saying they're Black. I was just looking at an article about Obama and how he was perceived. And they were asking, I think it was U.gov, and they were asking, do people think we'll ever have another Black president? The majority of people who answered the survey said they do not think we'll have another Black president in our lifetime. We have a a biracial Black president, but I mean, he technically, he wasn't Black per se. I mean, he was, he identified as Black, right? But he was biracial. So he wasn't fully quote unquote Black. I mean, a lot of that is just identifying, you know, it's just like, what did he identify as and what did people perceive him as? We all perceived him as the first Black president. He presented as Black. So he was perceived as Black and that's what we said that he was, right? But I think that a lot of that is uh, is just identified sometimes by how society sees you and how you see yourself and how you choose to be and what you think. Because I've had biracial people hit me up on LinkedIn and I've been like, you know, I'm not sure if, you know, you look like you might be something going on. I don't feel you're Latino. I don't know what's happening. But and I've had people say, you know what, thank you for even acknowledging that and giving me the courtesy of just trying to understand that, you know, they like it on my posts. I'm like, Great they black. I don't know what's happening here. <laughs> you know what I mean? Because we don't ask, know. Right, it right. shows you just how obscure race is. I have a class in the platform, in my platform called The Origin of Race. And that's why I say race is a social construct. So I really don't even really believe in race. I mean, if you think about it biologically, we're not different. Like if you look at a black person and a white person, and if we didn't have our skin color, you wouldn't be able to identify or distinguish between whiteness and blackness. We're all really the same. So, and when I say that, I don't mean it to say like what that lady said to me earlier, like, oh, I don't see color. Of course I see it. But in terms of race as a construct, I just really don't agree with it because it's something that's man-made anyway. Honestly, when I think about race, I just don't even really think about it as a thing because I just feel as though everyone is the same. We all came out of the same motherland. So it's almost like that's why this is all really silly. Somebody came up with this idea that from a racial perspective, Black people fit a particular narrative And now we all have to suffer because of a racist ideology that was created really for more capitalistic purposes. It's like, okay, we need labor. Black people just fit the bill. It's really just our perception of like what, you know, it's not like black people have a certain, and that's what's been attributed to it. The narrative is what that goes back to. Because it's nothing like, it's not like an alien where it's like, oh my God, this alien is totally different. Like this alien has like a different head shape. It has like, it, it could compute things in two seconds. We all have pretty much the same right. set but of they would make you. They would make you think that. You are so exactly. different. You are this, like you were saying before, this brute, exactly. you're an animal, yeah. you're aggressive, all of these exactly. things. They'd have you thinking we were completely different. Like a different species. And that's how yes. they were able to justify what they did. Because exactly. how else could you justify bringing, kidnapping somebody from their native home, bringing them to a different country in the bottom of a boat, throwing up on themselves, chained up, urinating on themselves, defecating on themselves, the people throwing them overboard because they couldn't, you know, they were uprising because they didn't want to go. They didn't want to be kidnapped. So you have to throw them over the side to stop an uprising, killing them, lynching, raping. How else are you going to justify that? You're going to say that person is an animal. That person is worse than an animal. And there is a display in the old slave mart in Charleston, South Carolina, where the slave traders said they looked at the Africans that they brought over is no different than hogs. It just underscores the point that if I take away your humanity, 
I can then make you less than me. And I then decide what is humane and you will never fit it because my description of it is always going to have me on top. And you could never reach that. Every time you get to it, I'll put another layer, I'll pull it back or I'll find another way, which is why we have the prison industrial system. We have the school to prison pipeline. Anything we can do, if a second grader can get expelled, then that's another thing where that same, if if Johnny does that, it's like, okay, go back to class, just don't do it again. But if Kareem does it, oh, you get expelled. Or we can call your mom right now, you're going to be on home suspension for three days. So there, from very early, that narrative is formed. And then that narrative can never be overcome because in that person's head, they don't see color, which is just not true. Because you ended up in handcuffs over some $2.49 batteries. So I'm here to tell the tale, which is why I talked about it because I only a handful of people knew about it. But literally there were not a lot of people reached out after the article went viral and were like, oh my God, we didn't know. We never knew. And we know what a law abiding straight shooting person you are. And so sorry that happened to you because that's so counter to who you are as a person. It definitely is. By the same token, I felt like it was important to be vulnerable and share that story because people do need to see that it doesn't matter. You can be educated. You know, I was like, I'm a college student. I, I, I go to college right across the right across the street. Literally, the store was across the street from the college. So I'm like, can we go back to the dorm? I just got to figure out where the receipt is. And when my mom picked me up, she posted bond in Fort Lauderdale, drove to Gaines. It was like a four, four and a half hour drive. When she got there, you know, I'm rifling through my book bag. The same thing that triggered me with the Khalif Browder store. I'm like, I know it's in here somewhere. They would have just gave me a chance. I could have found it. And I opened up a folder and the receipt was right there in the front of that folder. Mm. The whole time. So it was with me at the jail and everything. And Mm. I just started hysterically crying because I was just like, it was there the whole time. I just was so flustered. I couldn't think of, of where the receipt was at. It kind of does illustrate this idea of just how different our experiences, our lived experiences are so very different. And I think, you know, for people to kind of discount that and just say, well, everything's the same, you know, stop trying to be divisive. This happened when I was 19. So it's not like I'm trying to be divisive. It just is what it is. My experience is not something I can trust me. If I didn't, I wouldn't want that to happen to my worst enemy. I always tell people all the time, I would never want my worst enemy to be arrested because the fear that was in my heart when I'm like, okay, mm. I know I didn't steal something, but everybody else in here is probably here for a good right, reason. Right, right, right. So you're sitting there, you're waiting yeah. to be processed. You have to like, there's something so awful about your freedom being taken away from you and just that ride to the jail, being handcuffed. So when people, I, I was very triggered by the whole George Floyd thing that happened when people like, he should have just submitted, you know, if the police tell you to do something, just listen. I'm like, until you don't have a pair of handcuffs, handcuffs are very heavy. But people that don't know, if you think it's just a play, play handcuffs, like what your kids play with when they do a cops and robbers, right. it is not that. So if people feel like when you're about to get arrested, my mom asked me, she said, how you didn't run? You wasn't scared. I said, if I thought I could have got away, I probably would have run. Because you have this fight or flight that goes into you and somebody's like, okay, you're about to be taken away. And you especially know, like it may be the George Floyd case when they say he passed a $20 bill that was supposedly fake. So whether he knew or didn't, the idea that somebody lost lost their life Hmm. over supposedly passing a fake $20 bill, it's so heartbreaking in the idea that our life is not as important as a $20 bill. Our life is, when you think about some of the frivolous things that when you look at Ahmaud Arbery or you look at Sandra Bland or you look at George Floyd, Eric Garner, Michael Brown, it's like the list goes on and on and on of Black folk where you're thinking, that was so, like my situation, it's like, my lawyer was like, why didn't they just 
take the batteries until you go home. And I was like, I would have gladly gave it to him. I just bought some other batteries another right. time. He, he, I told him that he, they refused. The only thing they said was I could sign a paper. They said I stole the batteries and they would let me go home. And in my 19-year-old mind, I said, but then if I sign the paper, now they're probably going to call the police for real. And say, Absolutely. Oh, and be like, look, look, she signed it. Uh-huh. Exactly. So that's why I refused to do it. Because my mom was like, you should have just signed it. And then they probably will let you go. And I was like, nope. nope. I was like, no way. I was and, too scared. And not only that, if you had signed the paper, they probably would not have let you in that drugstore Ever yes. again. That's what they said. And they did tell me that. They were like, which, you should never come back in here. Right. Which also means that because of something that wasn't your fault, you would have been penalized even past that. Yep. And that, in a certain sense, would affect your freedom to be. Right. I should have the freedom to come in this store right. and be able to buy things that help me to live my life. And now, mm-hmm. because of something that you have put on me, I no longer have that ability. And a lot of that went through my mind. I'm just like, I'm a very, and probably people that see me on social media know that I'm a very, like, I stand firm when I believe in something Mm -hmm. and I don't like to not stand on my principle. So the idea of admitting to something that I knew I did not do, just did not, even at a 19 year old age, did not sit right with me. And I just felt like, no, I shouldn't have to compromise and do that. And if it meant going to jail, I was just like, well, I guess I just have to go to jail then because I can't admit something that I know I didn't do that. That would be lying. So now I got my freedom, but now I said a lie because I said I stole something and I know I didn't. Mm. So now I'm really lying. I was in a, a fortunate situation in that I had a parent that could, could, could bail me out, could come get me, could get a lawyer because I had to retain a lawyer. Just, you know, there were campus lawyers that uh, did stuff for students on campus. But when I went to them, they were like, well, let's refer you to a local lawyer where we can represent you, but we wouldn't be able to represent you in something like this. Like if it was like a landlord tenant dispute or something that's small, but they were like something that's this serious, we would suggest that you retain an actual lawyer in the community that can fight your case for you and be more mm-hmm. effective. So I have to retain a lawyer. Suppose I had a parent that was not in a position to do that. My mom's a nurse, my dad was a mechanic. So they were like middle class-ish. So it was kind of like, okay, we got some money we can pull together. But suppose I was in a family that like, we don't have the money. You know, I would have just had to eat that charge because it's just like, you know, if you don't have the ability to fight something or, or get everything taken to the state attorney's office, or maybe I would have had to navigate that process by myself and not, mm. you know, there's so many elements of it. And then even if I would have been able to navigate just to getting the charges dropped, then where's the accountability line? I think that was my lawyer's right. big point. He was like, okay, fine it would be fine for us to go about the idea of just submitting the receipt so that we can get the charges dropped. So that's fine. Your record is clear as far as that's concerned, but you still have an arrest on your record and we still have the accountability piece, which is they did not follow their own store procedure. You did not leave the store. No one visibly watched you steal the batteries. There's all kinds of things in their protocols. It was so funny. The amount of emails I got from people that were just so supportive. One uh, young girl, she said, I worked at Eckert part-time for like five years. That was not fair what they did because normally you have to see you steal the batteries there's a whole bunch of check marks they have to go through before they call the police so Mm. they didn't even follow their own procedure but again you don't get the benefit of the doubt as a black person when you come in they already are thinking that you are going to be stealing something and there's no way in their mind that you could have had this particular thing based on the fact that you were an actual patron and that's the problem my lawyer had with it He was like, under normal circumstances, you would have gotten the benefit of the doubt. It was hard because Mm. they refused to admit 
that they were wrong. I fought them for three years. My lawyer kept trying to get them to settle because it wasn't like I was going to get like a million dollars from them. Mm-hmm. So like I wasn't hurt. I mean, of course, there's a mental aspect of it. But if I would have been maybe in a situation where I would have went to jail and then something happened or something tangible that I could say, this happened as a result of lost my job. I was like a nitro college student. I went back to classes. I didn't do well that term. So, I mean, there's mm-hmm. that. It was like not mentally in a headspace that I didn't mm-hmm. do well. So he was kind of like on some like, we don't really want to go to trial. We're going to threaten them and get them to like tighten up for the future. But they refused. Every time he would try to say, settle, just give her a few thousand dollars. She's going to be out your hair. She just wants you to say, you know, you were wronged. And here's some money for your troubles. That's basically, I just wanted them to admit they would not. And they literally drug it out. I think my lawyer's perspective was, they just want you to give up. Right. Like the longer they drag this out, they yep. have lawyers. So that's just someone on their payroll. So for them to just drag it out and just keep saying, nope, 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 it was her. They said it wasn't their fault. It was the police department because the police department is the one that makes the decision to arrest. My lawyer's like, we're not going to go with the police department. We're going after them. They made the call. So they're the corporation. They have the discernment to be able to say, this is something we should call the police for or not. At the end of the day, the police are only going to do what they're trying to do, which is arrest people. You're the one that called them. So if you're the one that's calling them and you're calling them for something frivolous, you're the one that should be held accountable. Don't blame the police because the police, I wasn't doing what they wanted me to do, which was sign the paper. So the police, actually, when he got there, he wasn't going to arrest me. He was like, well, sign the paper. I'm not because I didn't do it. So I'm like, because you're a police officer, you think you're going to tell me the same thing they just told me and I'm going to do it now. So he said, so I'm going to have to arrest you. You're giving me no other choice. I said, well, I guess you're going to arrest me then. I mean, not trying to be batteries. But I'm not going to sit here and say I arrested. I mean, I almost felt like that was offensive. I'm like, I'm going to sit here and agree that I stole something for two dollars. Like, what kind of person do I look like? If I wasn't going to steal no two (laughs) dollars, you looked like the kind of person that was who would steal, and they just wanted you to admit it because they already had in their mind that you had done it exactly. And we don't. That's what my lawyer said. And why won't you just admit it? Now you're a problem because Mm -hmm. now you're not complying. That whole idea of the George Floyd thing. We know you did it. And now you caused us a problem. The, the police officer, like, I could be on my break right now. I could go, you know, right. be chilling. And now I got to come deal with you. And all you got to do is sign a paper. And then we can all go about our business. But you won't do it. Now he was mad at me. I'm the victim. But he's mad at me. Like, just sign the paper. Like, he's just like, why are you being like this? Like, trying to reason with me. Just now I'm definitely not signing it. <laughs> because why does everybody want me to sign it so bad? I've seen a lot of people say this, like, but the police is almost like when they tell you to do something and you don't do it, then they really get mad. Because they're like, right. well, I'm the authority figure. And if you're not following what I tell you to do, now you give me no choice but to throw you down on the ground, but to arrest you, but to say that I persuade. Whatever it is that they're thinking that you should do because your brown body is basically their property. So if you're not doing something that you're told to do, it's almost like now they have to put you in your place, right? Because you're trying to assert yourself and that's not, you're not allowed to do that because my lawyer was kind of like, well, if it would have been, and he, he was white, and he was like, if it would have been a white girl that would have came in there and told him batteries, they would have never called the police. He's just like, let's just call a spade a spade. This is right. what it is. So what we're going to do is make sure that that whatever was in their head that made them do that, they're going to think twice. Maybe they'll do it again, but they're definitely not going to be so quick to just pick up the phone and call police mm-hmm. next time. Mm-hmm. Definitely a lot that goes around. And that's why I believe in being authentic. There's too much of us trying to create this sense of comfort or make ourselves just like, blend in or try to assimilate or create this idea of I'm just like you. And then when it the rubber hits the road, 
We know that's not true because if it would have been a blonde sorority girl from sorority row that walked over there to that the same situation, my lawyer said there's no way they would have called the police. They know her parents would have came in there and probably sued the mess out of them. So they wouldn't even thought to do that. Right. And they would have taken her at her word. They would have taken her at her word and just said, you know what? Mm, it's, I'm sure she wouldn't do something like this. Like that doesn't even make any sense. You know what I mean? I'm looking at her and I've given her the value of honesty purity and you know innocence and all of this stuff that's a lot of it is when we talk about code switching when we talk about narrative we talk about the idea of what blackness means and centering whiteness even muhammad ali said it he was like when he when he was little he asked his mom why when you open up the dictionary everything that's white is good jesus is is white the angels are white the little bo the sheep is white everything that's pure Snow White, everything is pure is and black, black male and, and all black these list black lists, everything, everything to do with blackness is negative. Everything to do with whiteness is pure and good. So there is this this whole idea of language and how that plays into what we perceive is good. The, the centering of whiteness in that's the default setting and everything else is other. So if you're not complying with the default, it's like you're problematic. You know, you mm-hmm. now if you if you get a TV from Walmart and everything says default or a phone from the store and everything is default, you're like, oh, this is good, easy. And you're pressing right. the buttons and everything is default. Now, if you have to like go out your way to create oh another setting, you're mad. Right. This <laughs> is a, this is well, now a this problem. Is, this is now a problem because mm-hmm. you're not going along with the default. You're not playing the easy role. So mm-hmm. us not creating this idea of ease, you know, this friction, mm-hmm. just like in the classroom, I have students that are English as a second language, students that are marginalized, students that are coming from poverty background, from black neighborhood, from, you know, first generation. I have to adapt the way that I teach. And I don't look at it as a problem. I look at it as an opportunity for one. I look at it like I see myself in them for two. And for three, it's just my job. That's just, I have to create extra for them because it's different than maybe if I taught in a suburban school where they already have that structure. But it's not going to make me mad. It's not going to make me feel like, well, now, because your English is a second language, now you're the problem. It just is what it is. Like that person is English. And I've had students tell me, well, I know it's going to be a problem. I know that probably I'm not going to do well. And I'm like, why would you not do well? Just do what you need to do. If you need help, you ask me and you are going to do well. Like I've had to literally deprogram students that are coming from, they speak Creole as a first language, they speak Spanish and they're telling me first day, I know I'm probably not going to get a good grade because English is my second language. Why would you not get a good grade? Mm. Deprogram. Because I deprogram. deprogram. I speak, you know, you speak English, you hear. So let's figure out how to make it happen and let's work around it. And I think the dominant culture doesn't have the empathy to be able to do that. It's like, no, you have to deconstruct yourself. And then come here when you're deconstructed. Into something that will, you'll never quite fit anyway. It's impossible. But I'm going to ask you to do the impossible. And then when you can't do it, I'll say you didn't want it bad enough. Right. Oof. Mm. Okay. My last question to you. Who are your Black heroes and or sheroes and why? My biggest Black hero that I have been lauding for the past six months or so is John Lewis, the late John Lewis. Because I think for those of us that are social justice warriors that are working on trying to bring a voice to the voices and bring attention to the idea of racial inequity and social justice, he stands out to me because of his fearlessness, because of 
his strength because of the idea of him not backing down. I think about him crossing that bridge at Selma and the fear. If you look at police on horses with batons drawn, ready to beat you, if you cross that bridge, they told him, don't go across the bridge. And they just kept on going. And he had bruises. He They beat him on his head until his, his head was bloody. Mm. And you think about me being arrested by the police. I mean, they didn't brutalize me. They didn't do anything to me in terms of that aspect, from a physical aspect. Still, I'm afraid of police because I know what they're capable of. And I know that they can arrest you and they have the power over you. Even if you know you're in the right, it doesn't really matter. But I didn't get beat. I didn't, no one did anything to me from a physical point of view. So I can only imagine what he had to overcome and then becoming a representative in Congress and knowing that he's been beaten by the very people that they're supposed to protect you. They're supposed to be there in case you have a problem. And that person has the power to stick a dog on you. That person has the power to pepper spray you in the face like we saw with the, the George Floyd protest. If you've ever been pepper sprayed, I don't think I've had a pain like that other than having a child. It is like the most awful feeling. So for somebody to take pepper spray directly to the face, I can only imagine the, it must be like hell burning on your face. So when I think about John Lewis and some of these civil rights activists and civil rights heroes, John Lewis definitely stands out because of his attitude, because of his strength, because of his longevity in Congress, and because of his idea that you just keep fighting. You don't stop. Don't stop. Just keep going forward. No matter what happens, don't let anything stop you. Persevere. He was arrested 40 plus times. And he I remember a speech right before he died. He said, I've been arrested 40 times. I'll probably be arrested more times. And it, it, they had pictures of him from when he was young and he had a smirk on his face. They asked him, why did you have a smirk on your face? He said, I had a smirk on my face because I knew I was on the right side. I got a mugshot, but I'm, la- I'm smiling at my mugshot. And it's pictures of him being arrested and he's arrested in a suit. I would say of all the heroes, there's so many of them, from Nina Simone to James Baldwin, um, Maya Angelou. There's so many. Um, Angela Davis, obviously Martin Luther King, Malcolm X, Sheikh Antejab. There's so many thought leaders and, and civil rights leaders that are my heroes. But I would say John Lewis is always like the one that I come back to because of that strength and that resilience. I 120% agree with you. And I'm glad that he got his flowers while he was still alive, for sure. Mm-hmm. That's our time in the black seat. I thank you for being so passionate and fearless and focused and ambitious and single-minded. Your love for the community, your love for what you do and the way that you express it in such a tangible way. Because I believe it's an act of love for our community for you to create the Black History Culture Academy because you love our people and you love educating. So I'm just so grateful that you took the time today and I want to let you know you are welcome back in the Black Seat at any time. Thank you you so much. This has been an honor and a pleasure. I appreciate you having me. With all of my melanin, I want to sincerely thank my guest, the dynamic Elizabeth Liba. Thank you for listening with an open heart and mind. Special shout out to Ketza for the music. I look forward to introducing you to some really incredible Black folks at some point in the near future, so stay tuned. If you have any questions or comments, please feel free to email me at superblack at intheblackseat.com. We're also on Twitter or IG at intheblackseat. God bless y'all and see you again soon.